Hello and welcome to Glass Half Full, a show that we could just as well a show that we could just as well have called glass half empty, but we went with the optimistic phrase because with the world as it is at the moment, maybe we could use some cheeriness. It is the whole premise of this show, though, that you can look at every major problem in the world armed with the same facts and using the same data. And depending on whether you are a glass half full or a glass half empty kind of person, you can find an outcome that suits your frame of mind. So we have two very different people in different corners tonight. One one maintaining that we can all look forward to a healthier future, and the other, well, it's not that he's going home in a hearse, but he carries the more pessimistic view. We also have three expert witnesses for them both to question and attempt to win over to their point of view. Now, health is a great place to start this series because surely we all want the same outcome. We all want good health, and we live in a developed country that appears to offer us that promise. But whether or not you think we can achieve a healthier future, well, a lot of that might just depend on the prism through which you view the facts. So what we would really like you to do, both here at the London School of Economics and Political Science and listening at home, and before we hear from our speakers, is to have a quick think about whether your health glass is half full or empty, and then ingest all of what comes your way in the next 40 minutes and ask yourself at the end if anything has changed that perspective. So we do need to have a quick shout before we start. If you think we can look forward to a healthier future, I would like you to shout full now. Who thinks that? Okay, that's quite good. Uh, who thinks not? If you think not, then can you shout empty? Empty! <gasps> I think they're slightly empty, aren't they? Did anybody shout twice? Oh, for goodness sake, madam. We'll have to go back and have a total recount. No, we won't. I think the empty just about swung it. So I'm going to try and hang on to those decibels in my ears, and I'm going to ask you exactly the same question after we have heard from all of our speakers. So I'm going to introduce our optimist tonight. Our optimist is Professor Tony Young, who's a practicing surgeon who leads innovation for NHS England. Now, Tony, why would you describe yourself as an invincible optimist? I think... There are many um, things in life, many challenges we face and so many things. And um, if we face life with a pessimistic point of view and things just can't be done, then that's against the human spirit. That's not who we are as a race, who we are as a people. We've always faced grand challenges um, you know, through various moments in our history. And I think you know, I'm, um, I was born in Essex and I'm now back there as a consultant surgeon um, serving the people of Essex and people say to me when one of the ambitions in my life I think is I've been given this incredible education and incredible set of skills. At NHS England I see some of the most amazing innovations from across five continents and our planet that um, uh, come and uh, show us their latest greatest things and I see one of my roles is how can we use that knowledge, how can we take it to help people have a healthier, happier, longer future. So how could I, in my role, impact the health care of everyone on our planet? And people say, well, when has an Essex boy ever done that? And I say, 150 years ago, there was an Essex boy who went to UCL Medical School, which is where I went, and his name was Joseph Lister. And I would argue that his discovery of antisepsis um, affects everyone's health care every day on our planet. So... I'm not putting myself in the same category as Lister, but what I am saying is that you can be anyone from anywhere and um, you can make a difference if you really want to. When did we stop dreaming and saying, 
we can change everyone's health, and I truly believe we can. That is an uplifting start. It's now going to be followed by someone who's <laughs> going to take it all apart. It's our pessimist. Uh, Dr. Richard Smith is the former editor of the BMJ and a professor at Imperial College's Institute of Global Health Innovation. But he's something of a thorn in the side of the medical establishment. And although you are a Dr. Richard, you actually had such doubts about your profession, you gave it up at one point, didn't yes, you? Yes, that was back in 1973 when I was a student in Edinburgh, and I went and heard Ivan Illich speak. And he was a very charismatic individual, and he argued the major threat to health in the world today is modern medicine. And I have to say, I kind of agreed with him, because what I'd experienced in the wards of the Royal Infirmary in Edinburgh felt to me like it was more for the benefit of the doctors than the patients. And so I dropped out for two days, and then I couldn't quite think what else to do. <laughs> because the previous summer, I'd done the hippie trail to India, and I thought, I don't just want to sit on a beach in Goa and be stoned. I want to be interested in birth and life and suffering and death and really think about them. So it's very ironic in a way that I should end up as editor of the BMJ because whether I like it or not, that makes you an establishment figure. So I was kind of blown off course and yet I end up at the centre of the establishment. Now, but now I'm just a yesterday's man, which is a great thing to be. We love a booking that, uh, that calls itself a yesterday's man. Uh, okay, Tony, because this series is glass half full, we're going to give you the opening pitch, and we need you to tell us why you think that we can look forward to a healthier future. Thanks very much. Well, I think we all know, we've seen in the media, and there are many great examples, that life expectancy is increasing globally. We only have to look in our own country at the NHS when it was founded in 1948. Life expectancy then was roughly around 65. And in the 68, 69 years or so since then, it's risen to now for men around 80 and women around 82. And we're seeing this global change happen. And that's part of the success of modern medicine because when the NHS was founded, we were faced with a lot of acute problems and illnesses. People died from heart attacks, from strokes, from cancer and infectious diseases. But now we have made such great inroads into those areas where we stent people who've had heart attacks and we have advanced pharmacology to treat them. For strokes, we can dissolve your clot and extract it now. For cancer, we have advanced chemotherapy um, regimes. So I think in the United States last year, the figures were 120,000 men diagnosed with prostate cancer, but just uh, 20,000 of those dying from it. So people are living longer and longer with their conditions and infectious diseases of course, that used to kill people very young, we now vaccinate against those. So we have a lot to be thankful for, for modern medicine, but we're now in a position in our country, in our health system, where 70% of our health spending goes on the management of chronic diseases. So with this increase in life expectancy that's come along that we're now all expecting and we're seeing globally, um, how can we have a health service and a system that's fit for purpose to help us move forward and enjoy a happier and healthier life. But it's not just about more years on your life. My view is it's more life in your years. How can you have a happier, healthier life? And that's everything we drive to do, and certainly I do as a practicing clinician on the front line. So when you're looking at the future and you're trying to say, what's going to happen? How is it going to change? How are these wonderful things that are out there ever going to become reality? The American um, author and writer William Gibson, and back in the 1990s, I think, said, the future is already here, just not evenly distributed. 
And so part of the joy of my role at NHS England is because we are the largest and longest established healthcare system in the history of humanity, the world beats its way to our door. And I feel like, as a little boy who used to invent things and, and through medical school I invented things and took them forward, I feel like I'm a little boy that woke up in the toy shop and I look at all these amazing, great, wonderful things. And one of my jobs is to say, well, how can we take those up? How can we take those forward? How can we get them to have impact on our lives? But the other joy of my job um, is because I look at, we get to see the whole planet and countries come and see us and talk about their issues and problems and, and try and learn from us. Some people are too standing up too close to actually see there is this big elephant that's there. And my joy, joy of my job is I get to stand back and say, wow, this is a big thing that's happening. And what's the big thing that's happening is our lives in healthcare are going to be disrupted just like so many other aspects of our lives have been. So if you look at Uber and Airbnb, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, all these companies which we're familiar who have disrupted their particular area, healthcare, I think, is about to be disrupted in that way. And we're going to see what I call a personalised, empowered health and care revolution, where a whole range of technologies are going to come forward. And the traditional situation where doctors were the gatekeepers of healthcare is going to be replaced increasingly by patients and citizens being empowered to look after themselves. So the sorts of things looking at the omics, so I call the omics the genome, the microbiome, which is the bacteria and how they are in your body, your proteome, how your proteins are expressed, your metabolome, your metabolics, your exposome. We know that 75% uh, of the illnesses you will suffer from now are related to your exposure in life, whether it's what you eat, what you drink, the environmental things around you. So these things are changing the way we look at things. But it's not just the omics, it's digital health and the platforms that are coming forward. It's the advanced uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, data analytics and algorithms. And people say, well, how, uh, how is artificial intelligence or machine learning impacting my life? If I'd have told you uh, three years ago that it would be possible for you to freely have any language you choose live translated, you would have said, I wasn't being serious, it wasn't true. But machine learning has moved forward so much. If you've been on Skype or one of the other platforms lately, you can have free live, real-time translation into more than a dozen different languages now. And this machine learning and things are going to start impacting the way we treat people and look after them and so much more as we move forward. But it's not just machine learning, it's the advanced technology. So there are a number of amazing things from connected devices, new platforms, wearable sensors amazing little bits of kit. So we used to have a whole pathology laboratory filling a hospital and in the very near future is coming a benchtop box with just one drop of blood that will tell you all your blood tests and your results. Tony, can I ask you just one quick question yep. about that though? Just um, a lot of people uh, find technology as frightening as it is exciting. So when we're talking about whether or not we feel optimistic or pessimistic about our future, you know, clearly we can sense your excitement about that. But perhaps people are listening thinking, I'm not sure I trust all of those things. You know, if you're going to put my health in the same bracket as Uber or Amazon, those companies create problems in life as well as solving things for people. Can you see that a fear might be attached to your cheeriness too? No, so certainly I can understand. There's always a concern, isn't there, about new things and new ways of doing things and how we have to look at them. But, you know, 
Many of the population are voting with their feet and they're using these products and these services and taking them forward. But if we use technology and it ends up discriminating against people because some people aren't familiar with it and can't use it and it leads them to be isolated and disadvantaged. Well, exactly, and takes away the value of care. You know, for a lot of people, their optimism about their health is based on the contact that they have with a healthcare professional who reassures them, who talks them through that, you know... Putting a drop of blood in a magnificent box won't be doing that. It might be solving other problems. So I, so I absolutely agree with you, absolutely agree with you. And the last thing I was going to say is key, is social networking and those platforms. So how do we end up with a situation where we bring technology in that increases social inclusion and reduces social isolation? Because we know that's absolutely fundamental. I'm reminded of the words of Maya Angelou, the American author, who in one of her poems said, people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but they will never forget the way you made them feel. So we will never replace the human being with a robot or a complete autonomous system, but they can be augmented by it. How can we use this um, uh, technology, these uh, algorithms, all these things, to actually almost make our clinicians and our carers bionic in a way so they can do superhuman things that will allow them and allow patients actually to do those things that their doctors and clinicians used to do for them? Because we're really interested in where your thought process starts in all of this, so the prism through which you then view all of these facts and, and, and all of this data... Is there something in your own life that you'd be able to tell us about that would make us understand why you can come to the field of medicine with such an optimistic view? So um, people often say, you know, things are so hard at the moment, they're so tough, everyone's feeling, particularly in the health service, under pressure, and, and how is it you're so optimistic about things? And I suppose it comes back to a time when I was a little lad, and there was, she was just a family friend. She was, a, 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 I just knew her as Frida. She was a, a little old lady that we knew. And um, I knew her right throughout my life. She was there on my um, wedding day when I got married. And um, Frida would tell me, she said, you can be anyone from anywhere and you can change the world if you want. And it wasn't until I got to medical school that I learned who Frida was and what she had done. So she um, was just a family friend, but turned out she was a lab technician. And then I found out she was a lab technician at King's College London. And then I found out that she was actually the head lab technician who ran Rosalind Franklin's laboratory. And she had printed off the X-ray crystallographs for the first time that showed the structure of DNA, left them on the side the day that Crick and Watson came to visit the lab, who then saw these. Frida rushed in, took them off them and said, don't look at my boss's work. And so her leaving those things on the side has changed the course of history. Little Frida, who told me as a little boy, you can be anyone from anywhere and you can change the world. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much indeed for the opening view and the optimistic view. We're now going to really take it down to freezing with the pessimistic side of things. <laughs> so the opposing view comes from Richard Smith. Why do you think that pessimism is a better way of looking at our health? You've described yourself as a medical nihilist, which is a very, very bleak term. Yeah, well, I would describe myself as a cheerful pessimist. The people who know me don't see me as pessimistic at all. I think I'm pessimistic for the simple reason that's intellectually the way to be. When we look, as I'm about to describe, at the state of the world, then you need to be pessimistic. But it doesn't mean that potentially you can't change it. I think maybe Tony is living in a bit of a cloud cuckoo land. As I'm now. <laughs> So well, it's Essex. It's very rude about Essex. We're talking about health here, not health care. And it's well established that health care 
accounts for only about 10% of health. It's mostly down to our environment, our genes, our lifestyle, which is why it is important that patients take over uh, from doctors. But health care, as, as everybody here knows, is actually sickness care, and it actually makes things worse rather than better, as I'm going to explain in a minute. Uh, and also, I'm glad that Tony's thinking globally. I think we should think globally, not just about Britain. Um, and I was going to start by the major threat to our health is that we are destroying the planet um, between us. But I'm going to gloss over that because there's going to be a future program on that. But that was my kind of killer argument, but I'm going to leave it to one side. So I'm going to move on to emerging diseases. So people here will know, I mean, since when I graduated from medical school in 1976, I'd never heard of AIDS or HIV. We've had AIDS, SARS, MERS, Ebola, Zika, and many, many others that people in the audience haven't heard of. They are coming thicker and faster. And Tom Koch, who's one of the world's leading experts on emerging diseases, said within the next eight years, we will have a major pandemic of a new and untreatable infection that will affect 60% of the population and have a mortality of 30 to 35%. So two-thirds of us will be affected, and of those that are affected, a third will die. And he said, I used to say this was going to happen in 10 years, but now I've shortened it to eight years, because I know it's coming more quickly. And we are woefully ill-prepared for that, just like we were for Zika. Then, when the next problem is that uh, Tony talked about the, uh, the miracle of antibiotics, but we have abused them so horribly, just like we've abused our planet, that rapidly the bugs are becoming resistant. And although we might be smart, perhaps smarter than the bugs, they have the great evolutionary advantage that they breed every 20 minutes, and we just can't beat evolution. So very quickly, most of our antibiotics are going to be useless. So then all the things we associate with medicine, like surgery and intensive care, is going to disappear. We're just not going to be able to do it. And then, as Tony said, if you look globally, we've got a pandemic of non-communicable disease. That's heart disease, diabetes, obesity. Uh, it kills 80% of the global population now. And WHO, there are, that was 38 million deaths this year. But WHO says because these things are going up in most places, more smoking, more unhealthy diet, less physical activity, that it's going to kill 55 million by 2030. And then, as I was saying, healthcare is really sickness care. Now, Tony blithely says life expectancy is increasing, which, of course, it is. What he didn't mention is that unhealthy life expectancy is increasing faster. So life expectancy is going up like that, but unhealthy life expectancy is going up much faster. Just because it's radio, I'm just going to explain the gradient on that. It was quite okay. steep when he said going up like that. So it's about a one in five gradient. So as... As, as, as Tony says, you know, a Scottish woman, for example, because I looked at the data today, can expect to live to be 80. But unfortunately, she's going to spend the last 20 years of her life in, in ill health. So she's going to be potentially demented, blind, deaf, arthritic, depressed, and being treated with toxic chemotherapy for cancer. Then the next re reason that health sickness care makes things worse is that it crowds out because we spend so much money on healthcare, ridiculous amounts of money, and as Tony will explain, the problem with the technology in healthcare, unlike phones and things, which as we invest in them, they get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and can do more and more for less and less, health technology, on the whole, 
increases cost. That's why health costs are going up so much more, because we can do so many more things, but many of those things don't add much more value. And the trouble is that crowds out things like spending on the environment, education, housing, things that actually do do good for health. And then do people in the audience know what is the third commonest cause of death in a country like this and in America? Well, it's medical error. Um, Gasp! And then medical error. It's killing some 40,000 people a year. If you go into hospital, you have a 10% chance that something horrible will happen to you, like a wound infection or whatever, and you have a 1% chance that it will kill you. And we've known this for a very long time. We've known it for 30 years, yet we've done almost nothing about it. So coming to the end now, and then we've got rising levels of ill uh, poor mental health. So 30 years ago, people felt much better about the world than they do now. And we've the prescriptions for antidepressants have doubled in the last 10 years. We're now prescribing in England something like 35 million prescriptions for antidepressants each year. That's almost one for every... Well, it's more than one for every two of the population. So something's gone very, very wrong there. And I wanted to end up, interestingly, exactly where Tony ended up. Because the disease of our age, which medicine has caused and can do nothing about, is loneliness. There are millions of people suffering badly from loneliness, and somehow we've created that, and we've not been able to do anything about it. So apart from all of that, medicine is full of miraculous things. <laughs> you do seem to have an ability uh, to be uh, quite cheery about the pessimism. Would you, would you accept that? No, no, no. Because, because like I say, I think if you analyse things intellectually, that's where you get to. If you examine the evidence... <laughs> then it's the appropriate thing to be pessimistic because, you know, what I'm arguing is all truth, folks. That's okay. the way the world's going. Well, we're going to pick it apart a little bit over the next half an hour or so, and it's not just the two of you slugging it out here tonight. We also have with us three people whose day-to-day -day experience of healthcare might be able to inform us a bit more about how we see our own health and the whole system. Uh, so Professor Helen Stokes-Lampard, Dr. Helen to her patients and hopefully to us here tonight, uh, practices as a GP in Litchfield and trained in inner-city Birmingham. She trains medical students there in the art and science of general practice, She's also now the chair of the Royal College of GPs, so she's well aware of the challenges her colleagues are facing in those 10-minute consultations. Uh, Dr. Helen, as our doctor at the coalface, uh, are you optimistic that we're going to have a healthier future? What do your patients seem to feel on the whole when they come and see you? So on balance, I'm an optimist about the future of health and wellness and well-being in the UK and the world. Um, because I see how many advances we've made. I've seen how amazingly resilient human beings actually are and how we cope with the changes that are thrust upon us and we thrive and ultimately survive. Um, I, I, during my professional career, I've seen massive changes in survival from heart attacks and strokes and cancers. And that gives me such hope for the future and so many other things. So those are serious, life-limiting conditions. But we're making so many other advances. One of the greatest successes of our time is the management of chronic diseases uh, in our healthcare system, whereby these people aren't going on to have... Nobody knows that we've saved them from a heart attack or not. They just know they took the pills that somebody recommended. Nobody knows that they didn't have a stroke. Um, and that's the difficulty. It's, you, it's very hard to measure... 
uh, at the individual level, but at a population level, boy, do we know. We've seen the massive drop-off in these things, as, be, as has been said. But also, we know the massive impact that immunisation has had. And now, the public health level initiatives, it's great to hear the country talking about um, health and wellness and well-being, exercise, obesity, and the challenges and problems it's causing. And we're having public conversation about things um, the doctors and healthcare professionals have known for a long time, but haven't been able to get the message out to the public. And so I am positive about the future because we recognise the problems, we're identifying them and until you identify things it's much harder to fix them. But you're often at the start of someone's healthcare journey, aren't you? You're the first point of contact and I wonder how most people, and I know it's difficult to talk in these, you know, most kind of uh, scenarios, but are people scared by what they hear about the healthcare system? Do they believe that as an individual they, they will have a positive outcome or are they coming to you thinking... You know, I've heard this about the NHS, I've heard about the collapse of this system, you know, I've, I've heard the latest scare story about superbugs or antibiotics or whatever it is. These things, are, they're, they're powerful images and they're, they're spoken about in a very loud voice. Sometimes that can seem louder than the voice that tells us about the wonderful things that might be happening in medicine. Well, everyone loves a bad news story because bad news story grabs our attention and gives us an adrenaline hit. But what's interesting is when it comes to personalisation of that message, people feel very differently about it in my experience. So the patient who comes through the door comes in in full anticipation that I will help them get better. Bear in mind, many of them will have sought help from, and advice from colleagues and friends and family first. So by the time they see a healthcare professional, we are actually part way along the journey. But they've also Googled their symptoms you they know, have. for 17 hours and discovered that actually death is the only release. <laughs> and yet, the power of the personal interaction, the power of looking somebody in the eye and saying, Mrs Smith, I know you, I know your family, I know where you live and how you live, that doesn't apply to you. You've taken some wacky website, which was well-intentioned, but actually, what really matters to you are the facts, the relationship, the person... And, and, and I, the Mayor Angela quote was powerfully made. It's how you make people feel. And one of the powerful things as healthcare professionals we can do is personalise, make the message right for the person, help dissolve the fear and the negativity. Um, however, what we then have to do is bring the reality into the consultation. So Dr Google is a powerful force. I hope it'll be a powerful force for good. And on balance, I believe it is. Um, but Dr Google is sometimes best left at the consulting room door. Uh, Tony, would you like to challenge our witness over anything? So, well, no, I'm very supportive of uh, Helen's view, <laughs> I would say, and I would agree with it. But so one thing that if you were looking at things and, and you've had an you know, outstanding career in, in what you've done and what you've achieved is something, but in your frontline role as a GP and all the things you've said, if you were going to pick three key things, three key areas that you think are going to be important for the future to helping people live happier, healthier, longer lives, what three things would you pick? Oh, that's a good question. So when I think about my patients, in a sense, we've dealt with a lot of the stuff already. We've said about what we've done for heart attacks and chronic disease management. I guess I would love to deal with pain better because um, people who experience pain, it magnifies and it, it brings down all other elements of their health and well-being. So pain management that was um, universal and uh, tailored to the patient. Um, I would be 
so enthralled if we could deal with mental health problems better. So if we could uh, treat depression, I guess, is, is the most common manifestation. But anxiety, depression um, has a massive impact. And we've talked about loneliness and si social isolation. So those go hand in hand frequently. Um, and so I guess my third would be uh, the social challenges of our society. Um, so social isolation. But I could add another three very quickly, but I'll start, I'd better stop there. <laughs> Uh, Richard, I'd, I would like you to uh, have a moment to, yes, well, I must to say, ask Helen, Helen I mean, You've got a very rosy view of general practice, rather reminiscent of Dr Finlay. I suspect that's not the experience of most of the people in the audience, but you are the chair of the Royal College of General Practitioners, so what else can you say? So let me ask you about antidepressants. I only have lovely, happy patients, Richard. <laughs> So let me ask you about antidepressants. So yeah. Most of these are prescribed by GPs. Yeah. Quite a lot of evidence suggests they don't really work very well. Yeah, so about why 50 are 35 million prescriptions of antidepressants being uh, prescribed every year in England? And it's going up, so it could well be 40 million next year. So we know that in about 50% of cases they don't work, but 50% of cases they do have a benefit. That fits roughly with my own personal experience in the consulting room. Um, we give them because people come to us because they're depressed. They're low, they're lonely, they're socially isolated, they have developed a disease that we can classify as depression or anxiety. And we haven't got many weapons in our armamentarium, and that's a difficulty we've got. That's a huge society problem. Uh, people are much more isolated nowadays. Um, and we haven't got as many mental health therapists out there to provide the evidence-based therapies like cognitive behavioural therapy that really can help. So unfortunately, doctors, and we're all desperate to do something to help. So we reach for one of the few things that we do have at our disposal. Um, and of course, if they don't work, we stop prescribing them. People who have repeated prescriptions are generally those where they do help. So are people twice as depressed as they were... Ten years ago. We have a lot more people. Uh, we don't uh, have twice as many people. <laughs> no, we don't. Sometimes it feels like it. Um, they prob well, I'm not sure. I can't quantify that. What I do know is that people come to us because they think we can help them. And when other people can't help them, people have lost their, uh, their religious groups, they've lost their, fa their friends. This, this social isolation is so a lot to So you're prescribing pills for a social problem. You're medicalising problems. Can I ask you as well about whether you see much futile treatment? Because there's quite a lot of evidence that a lot of what doctors do, particularly at the end of life and intensive care and such like, is positively futile. The patient is never going to benefit and, in fact, suffers a lot. Particularly, I'm thinking of a lot of excessive treatment of cancer at the end of life. Do you see much of that with your patients? You, see, you certainly see a reasonable amount of it. One of the joys of being a GP is helping to undo that and helping stop futile treatment, to have those difficult conversations with patients and their families and say, do you know what, actually, I don't think this is working, to say, I know what the guidelines and the, the, the formally say, but you know what, there is something more important. There is you at the heart of this. There is the real patient and what they need and want. And so that's where the beauty of general practice comes in. I talk, you mentioned the art and science and that's part of the art of what we do. And it's good to hear all of medicine talking more openly about futility and stopping treating. It's much, um, it's much more dignified and kind uh, and compassionate to stop treatment where it's no longer helping. But it takes courage to stop treatment. And as medical students, we train them, we train our junior doctors to keep treating, to do everything we can. And we have to perhaps unlearn some of that. So you're saying really that doctors are part of the problem because they can't handle death which is a very normal and marvellous process. I'm really not saying that, Richard. I say doctors are very much part of that solution. Is part of the art and science of what you're training GPs to do to be optimistic within the surgery, to be that first point of contact or to be the very familiar face, you know, to simply be dispensing something that is more uplifting as well as the... 
prescriptions. We talk about the doctor as a drug and part of the therapeutic journey for the patient can be that relationship with their healthcare provider. It doesn't have to be a doctor, of course. Um, so so yes, what happens with it. Tony's vision of technology taking over you know, on this super highway. Tony was incredibly wise when he said at the end that the, the, the clinician-patient interaction is very powerful. What the super highway can do, I would have thought, is take away a lot of the uncertainties, to take away a lot of the stuff that a doctor doesn't need to do. So uh, give more... Uh, Oh, uh, more ammunition, no, that's the wrong word, more evidence to support the decision-making process. Um, perhaps I'm not as optimistic as Tony about it, um, about the speed of it, the pace of it, and the cost of it, but uh, there are wonderful advances already. I mean, I love point-of-care testing when it can give me an answer. I mean, just point-of-care pregnancy testing, when a patient comes in and knowing if they're pregnant or not makes every difference, a massive difference to how I deal with a patient. You know, that's technology that's 30, 40 years old, um, but transformed the doctor-patient relationship and what we can do in the community for our patients. So I suspect that we all know the answer to this question. Are you a glass half-full or a glass half-empty kind of a girl? I have to concede I'm very much a glass half-full kind of girl. Okay. So our next witness, thank you very much indeed, our next witness is Vivian Parry, known to most of us as a broadcaster and writer, but she's also now the head of public engagement for the 100,000 Genome Project, which is promising to revolutionise the diagnosis and treatment of disease. Uh, welcome to the stand, the courtroom, whatever it is that you're a witness to, Vivian. Uh, how does the project give us hope for health in the future? I think what the 100,000 Genomes Project does is establish the basis of personalised medicine. Medicine that treats you well, we've always treated people as individuals, but actually goes much, much deeper. We've talked about, for instance, the problems of having people go into hospital and take medicines that either don't work for them or make them ill. And there are about uh, eight 1,000-bed hospitals every day in the NHS that are full of people that have adverse drug reactions. You can use the science of what's called genomics, or more specifically, pharmacogenomics, what a word to say, but you can use that to find out exactly which medicines people will do well with and which they won't. We already see some kinds of personalised medicine. We see that in drugs like Herceptin for cancer. In cancer, personalised medicines or uh, medicines targeted at your tumour are common. But actually, they're now beginning to spread to much wider areas of medicine. So that instead of one size fits all in a disease, for instance, like diabetes, we're now recognising there are lots of different buckets within that diagnosis of diabetes. And people need to be treated in different ways. And if they're treated in different ways, their medicines will be very effective or their treatments will be very effective. We talked about uh, you know, the problems of uh, bacterial resistance. Actually, you can use genetics to find out in little uh, tabletop boxes with just a little bit um, of urine to find out whether a bacteria that somebody has uh, in, as a cause of their infection is antibiotic resistant or not. You can use those sort of machines and kits to tell, for instance, whether it's flu, which you need uh, to specific treatments for, or whether it's just a cold. Those things are all coming on stream thanks to 
the work on uh, genomics. At the moment, the 100,000 Genomes Project is laying those foundations. It's only dealing with cancer and rare disease at the moment. But the knowledge that it brings will be available in all sorts of different fields. Now, Tony, you're nodding your head to the extent that people listening at home hundreds of thousands of miles away can probably feel the vibrations. Uh, would you like to talk more with Vivian about the exciting developments that this brings? Well, I suppose I'd like... I mean, I agree with what Vivian says. I think um, this... Um, we need to be really proud in our country, you know. We discovered DNA in this country. We sequenced the first whole human genome in this country. But what that could bring in, and Vivian didn't mention this, is discrimination on the basis of your genes in the future as you look forward. Now, Richard might use this as an example to tell you it's all over and we might as well go home now. <laughs> but I would say to you the world is going to move the way that the NHS is. We have a pooled risk system. We will treat you on the basis of your need, not on the basis of if you can afford to pay or the genes that you were born with. So there will be no genetic discrimination here. We will treat everyone on that basis. In other countries where they're insured and you will be risk stratified according to that, maybe you won't get universal freely available treatment. And I think we can lead the world and lead the way in that. And we should be incredibly proud, not just to have discovered this and taken it forward, but also to have a healthcare system where we can truly deliver for our whole population whatever your genes are. And do you know, there's Mr. Pessimist sitting over there saying that all these things get more and more expensive. Actually, the very first genome cost two billion quid and took 10,000 scientists and 13 years to get out the door. We're doing them now for around 600 quid. I mean, that is extraordinary. And the price of, of that is falling all the time. But is the funding guaranteed? The funding is guaranteed through to 2020. Okay, so if you're listening on a repeat in 2018, your time's almost <laughs> up. But by that time, Fee, it will be available. It will be out there. The NHS will have it and will be the first health system in the world to have what's called genomic medicine or personalised medicine available for those that need it. And if you have a rare disease and it's undiagnosed, and at the moment those people go through years and years of tests never to find the problem, you can probably find out the problem within two weeks of the baby's birth. So, Richard, you cannot be sceptical about oh, this. Oh, I've been listening to this bullshit for 15 <laughs> years. <laughs> this speech could have been made 15 years ago. It's always and do you know what? I did make that speech 15 years ago because I reported when the Human Genome Project was, um, it was uh, the draft came out, I was that reporter standing there saying, this is going to change and revolutionise medicine. And do you know the reason it didn't at the time? It was nothing... Hasn't. It didn't at the time because it cost two billion quid and would have taken, you could have only done 30 for the entire NHS budget. Now, technology has allowed us to do it really cheaply and we've got the supercomputing available to in, uh, interpret and analyse it. So Richard, why don't you think that this is going to bring us all to a healthy Because future? I think they've 
grossly sort of oversimplified things, you know, that somehow gene we can sort of you know, identify and that will tell us about a disease or what's happening or give us a new treatment. But actually it begins to be apparent as we dig into this that it's much, much more complicated than that. Many things are involved with many different genes. There are also all sorts of other processes that mean it doesn't equal sort of one gene, one action. So the whole thing has been horribly, horribly overhyped. And I think in some ways it's given medicine a bad name because it's been, the, as, as, as Vivian said, she was making that speech 15 years ago. It's always the example of Herceptin. It's on a very small scale. I just think it's always jammed tomorrow. And then, what about the cost of it? Because yes, you illustrate my point in a way because of course doing the genome got much cheaper because that's science, that's not medicine. The trouble with medicine is it almost involves very expensive people doing things that are very ambivalent and tricky. So how is this ever going to help people in Bangladesh, for example, where I go several times a year? I mean, at the moment, people don't even have the most basics of things, let alone all this personalised medicine crap. Very quick response to that, because we can't take on the global healthcare system. You can use, though, the kind of little kits that you can use just a single, um, what's called a variant, you can just use some of those in very uh, resource-poor uh, countries to tell definitively whether somebody has got a disease or not got a disease. And those sort of things are actually going to be uh, enable healthcare in places that never were able to have healthcare before. Because you can have diagnostics in a tiny little box that makes that brings labo big laboratories to very out-of-the-way places. Vivian Parry, thank you very much indeed for your contribution. I'm going to make an assumption here that you're a glass-half-full kind oh of Oh, boy, am I an optimist. <laughs> I am the greatest optimist <laughs> okay. in the place. Well, as I mentioned as we started our programme tonight, what we're hoping is that you're listening at home and here at the LSE with a clean slate, that you've etch-a-sketched your mind, cleared from it your usual gloomy or cheery perspective, and that you are allowing yourself to maybe, just maybe, draw yourself a completely new vision of your healthy future. Uh, is anybody here in the theatre at the LSE having a bit of a moment yet? Is anyone changing their mind at all? You're just standing firm in the corners that you came to the theatre with. Well, shame on you. One more witness to go. <laughs> it's Professor Kevin Fenton. We've invited you tonight, Kevin, because you are the man responsible for trying to change our health, to change what we eat and how much we drink as Director of Health and Wellbeing at Public Health England. What a task. So, with diet and obesity being a factor in so many diseases, presumably you have an enormous uphill struggle when it comes to our healthier future. Are you cheery about the direction of travel, at least? I am very positive about the direction of travel, but I'm also a pragmatist as well. In other words, we're not going to get to where we need to get to by chance. We will have to work at it. We're going to have to work through very complex systems. We're going to have to work differently in engaging members of the public in that journey on their own health and well-being. And we're going to have to hold each other to account, governments to account for doing the things that government alone can do, the NHS and local government, who are key players now in improving the health and well-being of the population. We need to hold them to account as well. But most importantly, <clears throat> we need to have a new conversation on our ambitions as a nation for what we would like to achieve in terms of improving our health and well-being, which is why I think the conversation tonight is so great, because it's more about what the future can hold and what our respective roles in achieving it will be. 
So could you give us some facts and figures, put some flesh on the bones, but obviously not too much, uh, about what it is that we uh, have achieved already and that you think we are capable of achieving? Because you could take the figures about smoking, for instance. You can say there were only half as many smokers as there were 30 years ago. Equally, you could say how absolutely unbelievable that anybody is still smoking, given what we know about it now. So what are the things that you might like to lay in front of us? Yeah, well, you, know, you started with uh, diet and nutrition as an example. Do you know that in the last 10 years, we've reduced by 10% the amount of salt that we're ingesting in this country from about 8.9 grams per person per day to about 8 grams today. And that reduction by 11% is saving nearly 4,000 premature deaths per year. And it's actually saving the health service more than two, nearly 300 million pounds per year. And that reduction in salt that we've seen over the past 10 years is the result of national policies, national ambitions and targets. It's a result of working with businesses, with manufacturers and retailers to extract salt from the diet. It's about taking members of the public along with us on this journey of healthier eating and reducing salt in the foods that you're placing in their foods at home, etc. So but it, but that is that, really is is an that example. working though? I mean, you could yeah. uh, also, the, the facts about obesity are always very shocking, aren't they? A third of 10 to 11-year-olds and over a fifth of 4 to 5-year-olds are overweight or obese in this country. That cannot be viewed in an optimistic way, can it? Well, at the moment we can't, but the good news is that we have worked across the system to begin thinking about what our ambitions can be to put an end to this obesity epidemic. And in August of last year, the government released the first Childhood Obesity Plan, which is really groundbreaking. It's one of the first comprehensive plans that we've had in any country around the world that says, what can we do in terms of national policy? And we've recently had the sugar levy, which is uh, taxing, so to speak, uh, sugary drinks and reinvesting funds from that into childhood physical activity. But we also are seeing a major national program on sugar reformulation, taking 20% of uh, sugar out of common products which are eaten by children over the next five years. Major changes in the ways in which we're engaging with manufacturers and retailers to make our food healthier, and especially the food for children, a lot healthier. Working with schools in new ways to promote physical activity and thinking about healthier eating in schools. Mm -hmm. So the key point here is that to take on these wicked problems, it will not be any single player that will be able to do it on their own. It requires vision, it requires ambition, it requires coordination from national government to our local partners, the NHS, and of course working with businesses and industries because so much of what we're dealing with is a result of these complex systems which are affecting our health negatively. I love the fact that you've used the word wicked because there's a real morality attached to that, but surely you, know, you can talk about public policy, local government policy, schools policy, until you're blue in the face. But it's about individual choice as well, isn't it? It's about individual information, and it's about the way that you view your own possibilities in life. So I'd like Richard to take you to task, if he'd like to, about how exactly that frame of mind might mean that we can't all make the changes that you would like people to make. Yeah, we, we well know that people find it extremely difficult to change. It, somehow their environment has to change. And that's why we've all got fat, because the environment has changed. We've created an environment where people don't exercise nearly as much and they're surrounded by um, high-calorie foods. But I think one of the problems here is that actually we don't really know quite what we're talking about. 
much of the time. So you'll have observed that it was saturated fat that caused heart disease. But that's all rapidly going into retreat, and now it's sugar. Uh, the reality, and it's probably because of all the things we did around fat that we caused people to eat more carbohydrates and get fat. So in many ways, we've probably caused this problem. And although we have done moderately well with smoking, although I agree with you, Fee, the fact that 20% of the population still smokes is pretty terrible, and everything is kind of bottomed out. But when it comes to obesity, we just don't know what to do. You know, we talk about the sugar tax. They've only ever done it in Mexico. They only started fairly recently. It's a very hard to interpret the effect. I think there's a fundamental mistake being made. that it, With tobacco, we eventually knew what to do. But getting people not to smoke, I think, is a lot easier than getting people to exercise more and eat different diets. But we have to bear in mind that some of the issues that we're grappling with now didn't occur in the last year or in the last five years. They've been slowly developing over many, many decades. So we're not going to turn the tide quickly, and it will require thinking differently and acting differently. Now, levels of smoking in our country are nearly half what they were 30 years ago. And yes, we see a lot of variation across the country now because smoking rates are higher in more deprived areas. But even in the most deprived areas, smoking rates are coming down. And why? It's because, again, you had national policies and national strategies which created an ambition for us to create healthier places, smoke-free places, smoke-free legislation that really helped us to change the environment. And that was supported by high-quality smoking cessation services in the NHS. And that, in turn, was supported by hard-hitting campaigns, engaging members of the public about smoking and encouraging them to quit. Now, there's some core principles there that we can use to apply to the obesity epidemic. And if we begin to think that these difficult problems are going to be solved by focusing on one thing at a time, it won't work. And that's why the Childhood Obesity Plan has more than 50 core actions which tackles national government, local government, businesses. Everybody has to be part of this solution. And that's where my optimism comes from. Because we don't really know what to do, we'll do everything. <laughs> the cynicism is just weeping from you, isn't it? Uh, Tony, would you like to challenge Kevin over anything? Um, uh, uh, it's great, Kevin. What, you um, the, um, what I would like to do is just um, inject a little moment of hope when Richard says we don't know what the solutions are and oh, I can't come up with them. And I agree with that. I don't think Richard is going to come up with the solutions. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'll tell you a little very brief story at what we're doing in Essex at Anglia Ruskin University where I'm based and in the schools in Essex because I'm a white, middle-class, middle-aged man and I don't think I've got the solutions for our population in public health in obesity terms. But what I observed, what nature does when it wants to transmit something across our planet and uh, involve the whole population is it gets an infectious disease and it gives it to vectors which spread that. And very often it's children. And it's our children who spread things right across our planet. And when we want to stop that, we have a childhood vaccination campaign. So what we've started, a pilot of just five schools in Essex, as I've said, why don't we use our children to tell us how we're going to tackle some of these problems? So we've built a little trial website 
going to be called something like Health App Advisor, where children in their school classes are going to look at health apps and review them. They're going to take them home, sit with granny or grandpa, and go through the tablet, look at their disease with them. We know from recycling that when we did an adult education program, the adults didn't recycle. But when we did it with our children, the children went home and bullied the adults into recycling, saying, you're going to be long gone and the planet's going to be finished and I'm looking after it. So if we do the same with healthcare and the, you know, the grandchild sits there and says, but Nana, this says you're not looking after your diabetes very well. Why is that? Not only do the next generation learn about how to use these tablets and take them forward, but they want to spend time with their grandchildren. And then Children will identify problems that I won't possibly know. You'll be from a different background. You might have a chaotic lifestyle of all sorts of things. You might be a child who's overweight. You will come to this problem with a different understanding to either an ageing or middle-class males, as you have in your two experts today. <laughs> they Me were... ageing, you middle-class. <laughs> <laughs> um, both men. But, but exactly. So why aren't we using our children, one of the richest resources on our planet? And when they've identified problems that maybe some of the apps aren't covering, what we're going to do is teach our kids to code. Because if we give them the skills to help design the problems and things that are relevant to them, I truly think we have a chance. So I'm putting our hope in our children. How many? Tony. <laughs> How many of the uh, 50 guidelines in the Childhood Obesity Plan were written by children, Kevin? Um, I can't comment on that, but I can <laughs> definitely uh, reassure you that a key part of the strategy is engaging young people and listening to the voices and the opinions of young people on what needs to be done, both in their local communities and their schools, and how they're engaging across the system as well. Uh, Kevin, thank you very much indeed. So look, the time has come to now really pit optimist against pessimist. Uh, we have a chance to, we've had a chance to hear all the evidence from our witnesses. And now you two gentlemen, I can just ding dong the bell and off you go. Uh, there are some things that have emerged this evening that I think are very interesting. You've both made very powerful arguments for each side. The things that have really stuck with me are the ability... The ability to embrace technology, not be fearful of it, and really look at what it might do to change our healthcare system. But the thing that stuck with me from Richard's arguments are just superbugs, overuse of antibiotics, people's inability to accept the frailty of their own bodies. Those are two completely different things, and I don't know where our audience will lie on whether or not they're swayed one way or the other. What do you think, Richard, Tony's strongest arguments have been? Uh, I, I agree with him that I think we... I often use the example that if you had meningitis, then whether you live or die and how well you do depends absolutely on the clinical team, the doctors and nurses. Uh, but very little of what we deal with these days is meningitis. It's now diabetes, obesity, heart disease. And in those circumstances, how well you do depends not on the doctors, not on the nurses, not on the team. It depends on you as an individual. Uh, and that's very difficult because I think somehow people have not kind of cottoned on to that. And I think all we can do to help people recognise that whether they do well or not is ultimately down to them. The clinicians they see three hours a year can't do very much. So I agree uh, with Tony on that. I'm very sceptical that apps and you know, all these technological gee whizzes are going to make much of a difference because unfortunately, as I said before, they are the main problem driving up the costs of health services across the world and actually displacing things that actually are better for health. Because I think Tony will agree 
that you know, healthcare accounts for only about 10% of health. We make a big mistake when we talk about investing in the health service. We're investing in a sickness service. Uh, we need a sickness service, but we don't need one as elaborate and overcomplicated as we've got now. You probably agree with that, Tony? Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I, Richard, I think you're wonderful. You're almost a national treasure. I mean, we are just... It's fantastic in this country, isn't it? You no, know, no, patronising me. No, 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 I mean that. I love nothing more than spending an evening down the pub with some friends, grumbling and groaning about anything. But other than making me feel a bit better, it doesn't actually move things forward. Now, I'm still a frontline practising surgeon. I still have... On Monday this week, I did a 40-patient outpatient clinic, people with real problems, real issues, seeing their fear, their concerns, their worries as they came in. You raised a whole range of issues around that. At one point, you said doctors are the problem. And um, so I might agree with you in part of a way that the, actually the medical profession and the way for thousands of years doctors have controlled access to medical knowledge and experience, I think there's a revolution about to happen and I think data, the internet, the digital revolution we're going is unlocking that information. We are going through the same point at the moment that the world went through when the printing press was invented. Just before then, books were handwritten by priests and given to kings and rulers of countries and education was restricted. The printing press came along, it democratised education. It changed our planet forever. And I think right now we're facing a situation where all the things I've described from the omics, the digital health, the data analytics, the um, advanced technology, the social networking platforms, the social inclusion and how we never replace that human being, that human touch, are going to come around and empower our citizens and our patients. And, and the point Richard made about um, uh, it's a sickness service, so I agree with you. And we have to move away from that model. We have to move to a wellness service. So when you're well, how do we encourage you to stay well and keep well? And we need to focus on that in the future. Richard, is there anything that you've heard from any of our witnesses that has slightly made you shift your ground? Um, I wish Vivian could have come up with something that all this genomics had actually achieved. And, you know, it's always jam tomorrow, and I'm getting increasingly, finding it increasingly difficult to believe in jam tomorrow. I mean, I do, I, I, and I think we are in agreement that somehow, to some extent, doctors have got to get out of the way a bit, uh, and that we are looking at a sort of fundamental change in the way that, you know, we will achieve health. But I keep going back to this point We've got to remember that most of health is nothing to do with health care, and we must recognise that. It's mostly to do with genes, environment, lifestyle. And actually, if we invest too much in health care, which is what we've tended to do, we actually get in the way of health, which I think, in my mind, is the kind of killer argument. But isn't one of the things that gets in the way of health people just being really pessimistic about <laughs> the, the outcomes in their future? Well, actually, there have been many studies, uh, a recent one from the University of Illinois, um, which show that positive thinking, PMA, positive mental attitude kids, uh, can actually really change the outcome of a health condition. They found, uh, they tested out more than 5,000 people, and they found that people who were most optimistic were twice as likely to have a good cardiovascular score and to be able to beat their cardiovascular illnesses because they thought, yes, embrace it, do it all. It's important to be optimistic about your health, isn't it? 
I'm not. I tell you what. What you say, what really worries me is about. I think of John Diamond's book. You know, cowards get cancer too. I think to some extent that going on endlessly. One of our biggest problems is that we have a very bad relationship with death. We have a death-denying society. Folks, every single person in this room, every person listening to this radio is going to die. And actually, in the end, that's what a good thing that is, because without death... There's the trail, everybody. <laughs> we need one of the things medicine needs. I think medicine, and I think Helen sort of recognised this, that we've a very bad relationship with death. We go on and on and on and on at the end of life. But cowards get cancer too, and you don't have to fight and fight and fight. And if you don't fight, it doesn't mean that you're a pathetic person. So, Tony, this is a a really good point as well, isn't it? That you can say too much to people about their life expectancy, about how they will end their life. Richard made the very good point about you can live to be 80, but actually of the last 20 years of your life, you're riddled with ill health. What kind of a life is it? So, in a sense, do you have to temper your optimism with recognising that there is a frailty to the human condition. So, uh, absolutely, the human condition is frailty and uh, is a frail uh, existence. But and it's really important. You do have to look at both sides of things. And you know, Richard, with his great experience and knowledge from all his years at the British Medical Journal, you know, and, and things that are proven one day as medical fact, the next week or the next year are proven to be wrong, and what we thought was wrong. So there is a, the, it's a really important role for us to question and for us to examine and for us to look at these things and really challenge them. But we can have... So on, on planning a good death, I commonly have conversations with patients. It's just this um, weekend on call, I had a conversation with a man who was terminally ill and wasn't going to survive, and with him and his relatives just raising the thing, you're going to die from this. I can't tell you when... How do you want to die? Where do you want to be when you die? What do you want in your final moments? So it is not about how many years there are in my life. It is about how much life there is in my years. And I'm really passionate about that. But we have to remember this debate is can I look forward to a healthier future? And I think we can look forward to a healthier future. I think the human, the way we're democratising healthcare and that knowledge, the way we're trusting our citizens and our patients with the knowledge that they never had before. Well, what about you, the audience, here at the London School of Economics and Political Science this evening? At the start of our programme, the loudest shout barring the woman who voted twice, uh, <laughs> went to empty. So you were rather pessimistic about the outcome and your healthier future. And I wonder, having heard all of the arguments, uh, whether the optimists have inspired you. Maybe people are actually weeping with their head in their hands. Maybe people are about to break into an uplifting rendition of Kumbaya. Let's find out. Uh, so if you are still terminally gloomy about your healthy future, can you shout empty again? The loudest shout was Richard here on stage. (laughs) But it was last time. But let's compare this with the power of positive thinking. Shout full. Full! Well, the full completely and utterly carried it. How many people changed their minds during the last 40 minutes? Oh, that's quite a nice little cohort, isn't it? Well done, you, in Optimist's Corner. So I think very much that the optimists have carried the day. Uh, I don't know what you've been thinking and voting for at home, but we'd love to know your thoughts. Uh, If there might be something... Sorry, I'll just wait for the door to close. Sorry, sorry, sorry. 
Otherwise, everyone will be thinking most of you just walked out. Is the door going to close? Does it close automatically? There it is, look. Sorry back there in studio headquarters, it's a very slow door. Okay, I'll just do that bit again. So it seems very much that the optimists have carried the day here in the London School of Economics Theatre tonight. We do believe that we can look forward to a healthier future. I wonder what you at home have thought, and if there might be something you've heard tonight that has made you question how you interpret the facts and how that might actually affect your own health. We do hope so, and now you may eat your crisps. Next week, we'll... Next week, we'll be debating gender equality is within reach. You can join me, Fee Glover, a woman at the helm of a show. Uh, we're on at the same time for another glass half full. From all of our witnesses, from Richard and from Tony, and from the audience here at the London School of Economics, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. much for listening. Please don't go quite yet, uh, just because we might have a couple of retakes to do and we would love to hear your thoughts if you have them too. So I will wait for a direction in my ear as to which is going to happen first. Yep. Yep. Okay. Right, sorry kids, in the audience, I'm really sorry. So we just have to do a, a very, a very, very few retakes, all completely my fault. Uh, but if you could just stay where you are so we have the same kind of noise levels, I'd be very grateful. Uh, this is your opportunity to just laugh at me as well, because I just have to read things out loud over and over again until I get them right. Here we go. Does someone just yawn? <laughs> Oh, that's going on my show reel. Right, here we go. Well, our time's nearly up, and both sides, the optimist and the pessimist, have had a chance to hear evidence from our expert witnesses here tonight. So I wonder, Tony and Richard, what you'd both say to each other having heard the arguments. Tony, what would your prescription be for Richard's very sad outlook? See, I didn't read either of those two things out at all. Are you all right, madam? A cup of coffee? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so uh, I think now, okay, okay, Tony, we've got to just do the first bit of you, uh, so just the I'm an Essex boy thingy, just literally... <laughs> Just the Essex. I'm not quite sure what you mean. I'm an Essex boy. Just the, sorry, just, the, just the bit where I ask you what it is that makes you such an optimist, and you basically say, because I started out in Essex and I've come back to Essex and it's all marvellous in Essex. Okay, right, I know where we are. Okay. <laughs> Wait, here we go. Time to introduce our optimist tonight. Uh, Professor Tony Young is a practicing surgeon and leads innovation for NHS England. Tony, why would you describe yourself as an invincible optimist? Um, well, thanks, V. I think, uh, you know, optimism is something that's 
just so important and, and fundamental to the human condition, isn't it? You know, I'm still a frontline practicing surgeon in Essex. I was born in the county and have come back there as a consultant. I'm also an academic in the university there at Anglia Ruskin University and I've got involved in our new STP which is our sustainability and transformation plan for looking at how we can just transform health services across our county. But you know my ambition really is to try and impact the healthcare of everyone on our planet if I can. I've been given an amazing opportunity at NHS England where the world beats its way to their outdoor to show us their latest greatest things. I feel like a little boy in a way that's woken up in a toy shop that can see um, the, the latest gizmos and gadgets going on and it's how can we make them happen for not just the people of my county and the people of the NHS but also the people of the world. But people say, how can you be an Essex boy and think you're going to change the world? Nobody would ever say that. And, 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 I, and they say, when has some... People laugh at me and say, well, when has an Essex boy ever done that? And I said, well, do you know, 150 years ago, there was an Essex boy, and he went to UCL Medical School, and I did. And his name was Joseph Lister. And I would argue that his discoveries in antisepsis change the health care of everyone on our planet every single day. Now, I'm not putting myself in the same category as Lister, let's be clear, but what I'm saying is you can be anyone from anywhere and you can have a dream and you can change lives across our planet. Beautifully done. Brilliant, brilliant. Oh, sorry, one more thing. Uh, someone's talking in my ear. I'm not just... You know. <laughs> Yep. Okay. And do you want the beginning again? Okay. I'm going to roll all those things into one if that's all right. And then do you want questions? Okay. So I'm going to say some things out loud. I'm going to do the beginning bit again. I'm not going to ask you to do your shouting again because it was perfect the first time. Okay. Bear with, bear with. So our optimist, Tony. Our pessimist, Richard. Here we go. Hello and welcome to Glass Half Full, a show that we could just have... I couldn't say it the first time round, could I? Try it again. Hello and welcome to Glass Half Full, a show that we could just as well have called Glass Half Empty, but we went with the optimistic phrase, because with the world as it is at the moment, maybe we could do with some cheeriness. It is the whole premise of this programme, though, that you can look at every major problem in the world, armed with the same facts and using the same data, and depending on whether you are a glass half full or a glass half empty person, you can find an outcome that suits your frame of mind. So we've got two very different people in different corners tonight, one maintaining that we can all look forward to a healthier future and the other, well it's not that he's going home in a hearse, but he carries the more pessimistic view. We've also got three expert witnesses for them both to question and attempt to win over to their point of view. Now health is a great place to start this series because surely we all want the same outcome. We all want good health and we live in a developed country that appears to offer us that promise. But whether or not you think we can achieve a healthier future, well, a lot of that might just depend on the prism through which you view the facts. So what we'd really like you to do, both here at the London School of Economics and Political Science and at home, and before we hear our speakers, is to have a very quick think about whether your glass is half full or half empty, and then ingest all of what comes your way over the next 40 minutes, and ask yourself at the end if anything has changed that perspective. Right. Questions now. We've got roving microphones. <laughs> questions, questions. So there's a gentleman at the back. 
yes, just the microphone coming to you. Off you go. So, um, it's, so thank you all very much. It's been great being here. The last time I was in this theatre was in 1968. We're at the London School of Economics. I'm really surprised that we didn't have more discussion about inequality and inequity, which is an extraordinarily serious problem in relation to health and well-being. Reference was made to life expectancy and to healthy life expectancy. The gap between rich and poor is huge. I happen to live in the London borough of Southwark, and the gap between the rich and the poor in terms of healthy life expectancy is worse now than it was last year or the year before. And across our country, inequality is uh, deepening and, and getting worse. So, so who, I, I, so who would you like to tackle that for you? Well, I'm a pessimist, yes. and, unless, and my view is that unless, unless we deal more effectively with inequalities, I find it very difficult to be an optimist. Fair enough. Kevin is going to tackle that first for you, sir. All right, so thank you so much. I am glad you're a Southwark resident. I'm going to be the new DPH, Director for Public Health in Southwark, so I'm looking forward to (laughs) tackling some of those wicked problems shortly. I think there are three things um, about the inequalities issue. First, I agree entirely with you, and I think much of the conversation tonight was focused on the individual, on clinical care, etc. But I think Richard's point, which is healthcare only accounts for 10% of what really generates health and well-being. And we have to think about behaviours. We have to think about those social determinants of health. Do you have a job? Do you have a home? Are you connected in communities? And where we're seeing inequalities in health, where we're seeing inequalities in well-being, it's because of the variations in those social determinants. So those inequalities in those social determinants. Second, I think we have the tools to begin to address this issue. But what what we haven't had is a resolute focus from national government, local government, in fact, a system that we need to tackle inequalities as well. So we are seeing some significant improvements, but we're leaving people behind. And we need to think about how we get our policies aligned better so that we can address the inequalities. And the government and the Prime Minister has said she wants to make Britain work for everyone, that we're in a place where we're wanting to ensure that we are tackling the inequalities issue. And I think you will see some new initiatives coming out from government, whether it's on social justice or the business strategy or housing and health and work, which will be tackling some of these issues nationally and supporting local action as well. Richard wanted to... Well, it's to lovely to hear well. from another pessimist. And I wanted to reassure you, actually, I've, I've, I've written a blog in which I've laid out my case with forensic detail, and you can read it on the BMJ website, and I have a whole chunk on inequality. I left it out here, and I'm not quite sure why. I should have done, because, of course, there's inequality in Britain, but if you look globally, I mean, the inequality is just absolutely terrifying. And in almost every single country, the Gini, the Gini index, which measures inequalities, getting worse. I mean, this is a, an effect of globalisation. And I have to say, I joined the BMJ in 1979, the week that Margaret Thatcher suppressed the Black Report, which talked about inequalities in health. We've been going on about it for the last 40 years. In fact, we were going on about it in the 19th century, but things have just got steadily worse. So you make an extraordinarily important point. And I'm sorry I didn't get it into my polemic, but it is there on the blog. I 
Helen, Helen just wants to, to come back at you, and then I will take, I'll try and take as many questions as and, possible. And just to be clear, when you've got an, a health economy and a social economy which is dwindling, which is where we are, we're in a difficult situation, those that suffer most are those uh, who don't shout and don't have the voice, which tends to correlate with the more socially disadvantaged. So health inequalities get worse in a declining healthcare environment, unfortunately. Um, and just about every chronic disease measure we can think of, those who are deprived of substantially worse. It's, it, it's measurable across the whole healthcare. And I mean, I don't think you'll find a public health co uh, colleague, uh, any healthcare professional who would disagree with that. Sure. Um, endemic, troublesome, um, and it's what keeps a lot of people awake at night. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much indeed for raising that point. I want to go now to the lady here at the front, and then we'll head over to that side of the room, and then I'll come to the gentleman at the back. Sorry, I've done that totally the wrong way round, which meant that you've got to run all the way across the auditorium. A full workout tonight. Um, so I'm Nish, I'm a junior doctor training to be a GP. Uh, my question's for Richard. Um, so I'm sure that if, when you interact with the healthcare system going forwards, you want to have the best and the brightest uh, staff looking after you, and my question is, if we continue to paint such a bleak and pessimistic future, and I, I agree that we shouldn't sugarcoat it, um, how are we going to make sure that we don't lose sight of the very things that inspire people like me to go into medicine, people to go into research, um, and probably just create the very future that you're actually painting? Richard, you are... Actually, I think I can sort of get out of it, because <laughs> one point I'd make is, I mean, actually, I have a daughter who's at medical school, and we have some very interesting discussions. <laughs> and I think, I think that, and I think Tony almost conceded this himself, by listening to a, an old Cassandra like me is a good thing, because it's sort of... I mean, a lot of what I'm saying is, it's mostly based on evidence. It's realistic. It's not... I mean, I, here we're playing a game to some extent and I'm cast in the role of pessimist. I'm, why was I outnumbered? You know, four to one! <laughs> but also, I, I have to... Here's something that's, you know, pretty cynical and awful. I'm not sure we do want the best and the brightest. We want the best in medicine, but I'm not sure the brightest. In fact, we had a debate when I was at the BMJ that maybe you shouldn't be too bright, and I think to some extent there's a whole lot of people go into medicine who in some ways are not suited to it, because actually they are the brightest, and they'd be better off doing science or something else. So I don't think we want people who are sort of compassionate and who have a kind of high emotional intelligence and understand the significance of the broader world. We don't just want smart asses. Oh. Okay, well, that's you told. Good luck with your career. <laughs> We're going, to, going down the front here. <laughs> Actually, how many of you are medical students in the audience tonight? Just, 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 just you. Okay. So, there's gen yeah, the gentleman down here. I'm a real-life older person, or, <laughs> as I style it, an expert by experience on ageing. And um, I don't recognise the picture that our middle-aged panel present as at all realistic. They're all employed in selling healthcare, and of course they're not going to knock the product. For people of my generation... Um, longevity is far from all it's cracked up to be. It involves a tremendous range of mostly incurable long-term conditions that get increasingly tiresome as time goes on. And it's astonishing to me that we can get through a 40-minute program without once mentioning dementia 
All that the healthcare offers on dementia is diagnosis, and it often gets that wrong. It can offer nothing by way of treatment. That is left to the desperately underfunded social care system, which provides pretty lousy warehousing for people in the later stages of dementia. Can I ask you something about your own levels of optimism and pessimism through your life, using your incredible experience as an older person here tonight? Because also that's what we didn't tackle. I mean, I think you know, your attitude to what your life's going to be when you're 20 is incredibly difficult, different to how it will be when you're 60. What's your path been? Upwards, downwards, about the same? I've been very optimistic in personal relationships, in my career, um, in my leisure activities, in what I do. And I remain optimistic on most topics except healthcare, where it seems to me the reality is crazy to say anything other than old age is increasingly unpleasant. Yes, of course. I, it was interesting because I was challenged at one point I mean, to name three things I'd like to fix. And the, other, the two I didn't mention were, uh, I said I could come up with another three, <laughs> but the next ones that were, were buzzing in my head were very much dementia. And also I was talking about the obesogenic environment. So I think you're absolutely right in terms of dementia because it's a massive challenge and we haven't got any cures. Uh, and it, when the big, that's such a hard thing for us to accept and deliver, and it's how we help people live with something until science can come up with some cures. Can I give you a bit I of good I led news? you into that, didn't I, I, Vivian? Can I give, a, give you a bit of good news, which is not, nothing to do with genomics. The incidence of dementia has fallen by 20%. Admittedly, it's in men, it's not in uh, women, and there are a lot more older people, so we've still got very large numbers. But some of the kind of things that Kevin is delivering, we know make a huge difference to the likelihood of people getting dementia. And it seems to me that what we need to do is try and make sure that we kill you off with something else long before you get dementia. So that you live for, a, you know, you, you are still at home, you are not uh, incapacitated, you're not going into care home because we can't cure dementia, but it looks like we can delay it, and we can delay it using those public health things of exercise, of uh, not being overweight, of not getting diabetes. So all those things make a huge difference. And I'm sorry, my darling, but you've been born in the wrong generation. Because <laughs> if you'd been born, I think, uh, earlier, I don't think that you will have such great problems in older age. And that's not very helpful, is it? No, it's not what you came for, is it? <laughs> no, we but, uh, right, we'll take... Thank you. Thank you. Helen needs to go. Do you need to yes. zoom round with pause, please? Two more questions. This gentleman right at the back there, right at the back. And then we have to vacate. Uh, thank you very much. Even though that was five to one, not, to four, not four to one, even the presenter came to help the optimist at some point. No, I'm really gloomy. That would, that would just have been a momentary lapse. I'm a very, very pessimistic person. One word which wasn't being used, and I think that's an appropriate place to say it at LSE, is like capitalism. The inequality which was mentioned is part of it, but also Tony's idea of science, which is like most of scientists have, is like this pure, pure Puritan way of like searching for, for the truth and for, for like whatever like challenges we have ahead. But those, those scientific methods have to come across the industry, which is driven by, by greed and by, by whatever is profitable. I mean, you look at the pharmaceutical industry, one of the most disgusting, one of the most corrupted, after arm industry, I don't know, is it after arm industry or is it before arm industry? Can and you, you, can can you boil it down to just a question? Just a question is, the question is what about 
the limitations that the actual economic system of capitalism put ahead of uh, medical-like uh, structures across the world. And Britain is the exception because of NHS. But outside Britain, things are much gloomier. Okay. Tony, do you want to tackle that? Market forces, are they in our favour? So, this is the LSE, after all. <laughs> <laughs> so, I feel most honoured that you think that a plumber from South End who didn't go to the LSE could answer a question on inequality and global health economics. So, I'm not qualified to answer that. But what I would say that I, I, I sort of said a bit, and I've seen it in the United States, and it sort of goes to this, is sometimes people hold shining new advances, whether that's technology or drugs or things, up as this almost like a, a, a new religion in a way, something people should um, worship, and, and this is the future and this is what it's hold, when actually the reality is that little individual sitting in front of me, whether they're a young person or an older person, sitting next to me with their very real issues and problems. And, and that's why I said technology is all wonderful, but if it leads to social exclusion or inequality, I could have said, rather than social inclusion and equality where it's distribu distributed across our whole population, then it's not going to work and it's not going to be taken up. And I think you know, um, uh, there's a lot of democratisation going on and the information that people have. So I think in some aspects there's an equality of knowledge that's now happening along around healthcare, which we have to embrace. I accept there are massive inequalities, you know, in the system. I'm not, you know, qualified to speak on economics and capitalism, but as a, I'm, I'm just a... I'm just a lad from Essex, okay? I'm, <laughs> I'm, I want to do something about it. I want to make people's lives better and change the world, and I'm passionate about doing that. And if you want to do something about it, then I'd say what Theodore Roosevelt said in his Man in the Arena speech. He said, get up out of your seats, roll your sleeves up, and come into the arena with us and help us sort it out. I love all your quotes. They're brilliant. Uh, one final, final question, and then the, the doors will close on us. So whose question is the best? I don't know. You all look nice. Let's go for the lady down here. Sorry, Jen. Sorry. Don't forget there is that programme coming up on gender equality. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Uh, my question's for you. Um, yeah. Um, what I'd like to ask is how healthy we can be when... Um, our whole environment is saturated with like chemicals. We're told to eat certain things which are probably not very good for us, like oily fish, for example, because they f come from the ocean, which is full of really bad chemicals. So we kind of brushed over the environment, but it's hard to be healthy, isn't it, if our whole, you know, all of our uh, things we clean our house with, our toiletries, we drink bottled water from plastic, all these things, we're ingesting these things, and how can we be so healthy when we're surrounded by all this stuff and that's why I'm pessimistic about the future of our health because technology means that more and more stuff is wrapped in plastic. All of our fruit and veg is wrapped in plastic. So you're so. basically saying we're going to hell in a handcart, how can I get out? Yes. Kevin, final word to you. So I think Tony or uh, Richard may have mentioned it. Part of the problem that we have is that we often get seduced by shiny objects and we tend to have messages which focus on one thing without thinking about the wider context within which that issue is sitting. And what I'm hoping is that, as, and one of the reasons why I'm, I'm a pragmatic optimist, is that the nature of the conversations and the discussions that we're having now are getting more inclusive, they're becoming much more uh, expansive in terms of thinking of health, not just as healthcare, but those wider determinants. And part of the wider determinants is the environment and thinking about sustainability, thinking about air pollution and its impact on health. 
Three weeks ago, there was a study about the link between air pollution and dementia, and that stimulated whole new conversations on social media because people began saying, hang on a second, this air pollution isn't something that I, you know, I, I shouldn't be engaged in. I need to be engaged in it now. So I think the key for us is to link the conversations on health, on economic prosperity, on the environment, in ways that we haven't done in the past. And that's why we need young people to be engaged in these discussions, because you are the custodians of the future, and it is your passion for environmental issues which will change policies and politicians and help to move this agenda forward. And be very angry about air pollution in London, very, because yeah. we exceeded um, the annual NOx levels, nitrogen oxides, um, in January the annual levels in January in some streets in London, and yet I don't see people on the streets demonstrating about air pollution. And actually, we really, really should be. It's really dangerous. It must be addressed. But somehow, even though the European Commission is about to take action, court action against us, we're still not doing anything about it. And that's because there is no anger from the population about pollution that will drive politicians on. Go be angry. Yeah. Mm. So go be angry. Don't get angry at us. We're lovely. Yes. <laughs> We've really enjoyed being here tonight. Thank you very much indeed uh, for your company. This programme goes out, in case you want to hear your own shouts, uh, it goes out on Radio 4 on the 5th of April at 8pm. And if you want to come along to any of our other debates, we've got two more here at the LSE and one at the Women of the World Festival on Saturday as well. Thank you all very much indeed for coming. Good night.